just like someone would do in the business world, right? You meet someone for the first time, you're trying to assess, is this guy legit or is he a con artist? And how do you do that? It's the accumulation of the package that, you know, your subconscious mind is just quantifying. The key thing I look for is, do I have their attention, their eyes on me or the eyes on the presentation and have them, even if it's for just a brief period, like they're fully dialed in and engaged, listening. That's what I, I'm, I'm looking for. Welcome to Think Deeply, Speak Simply, brought to you by Presentium, a show about the art and science of communicating ideas and how everyday leaders unlock their careers with great communication. And now, here's your host, Jay Rook. In great communication, delivering the message is only half of the equation. But what about your audience? Are they absorbing your message? How are they responding to you? In today's episode, we're going to explore the art of observation, or put differently, how to read the room. And who better to talk about how to read a room than our first guest, the famous professional poker player, Alec Torelli. Alec will talk about how he looks for tells from his competitors and how he then integrates that feedback and changes his strategy in live time. Alec shares his pivot and audit strategy for reading a room and we get to hear what it's like to play a 30-hour poker game in Macau. Alec will be followed by Srihari Narasimhan, Senior Director of Global Commercial at Gilead Sciences. Srihari expands on Alec's strategies and talks about how his professional journey has taught him how to study his audience in order to inform his messaging. And I think you'll love how he hears about mirroring his tone and energy to match his audience and message. With that, let's hear from professional poker player, Alec Torelli. Alec, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you for having me. Excited to be here, and uh, it's a pleasure. Excellent. Alec, tell us about what you do in Las Vegas. Well, so I'm not there all the time. That's the first probably thing that I do is I travel quite a bit, and uh, I'm lucky to be able to work online and play poker professionally. So those two things combine and allow me to travel, and I think freedom has always been the top of the bucket list, and then only allowing things into you know that little matrix that allow me to live life on my own terms. And so I was really drawn to poker for that, stayed in poker for that. And then when it came to building a personal brand and selling poker products and services and doing coaching, that all fit within that construct of, wow, this allows me to have more of those units of freedom that really are valuable. So yeah, that's a bit about what I do in Vegas. Of course, Vegas is the the mecca of poker. So I kind of right. grew up there. I was like my stomping ground. Yes. And then, you know, businesses and everything's based there. But yeah, I actually spend time part of the year in Italy where my wife, she's from there, her family's from there. That's really rewarding. And it's a beautiful counterbalance to some of the, the madness in the US as well and in Vegas as well. Certainly. Well, that sounds like a fascinating kickoff. But tell us about some of the highest stakes games that you've played at. Well, they're pretty big. I would, you know, bet a car, get raised the house. There's this game in Macau, which is uh, an island off the coast of Hong Kong. The gaming revenue is seven times that of, of Vegas. And the poker sort of follows that. And there's a private game there hosted in one of the casinos with these junket owners, which are, they own little mini casinos inside of these casinos. And so, you know, Chinese VIPs and they played very high stakes poker. And so I was one of the few Americans that got to play in these games through the connections I made and playing regularly out in Macau and being on their good side, learning a little bit of Chinese. And so those were very high stakes private games. And they would typically last 24 hours as well, because these guys love to gamble and, you know, was not culturally acceptable for you to leave before they were done, because you were kind of 
you were like the house, you know, so you were providing a service, you were there until they wanted to to quit. So that would typically be 24 to 30 hours. And of course, if you're winning, you can never quit, or you never get invited back. So yes. those were, those are some adventures out out in Macau. Love it. How about this? You know, today's episode is all about uh, reading the room. And so when you first sit down at a table, uh, talk to us a little bit about how you begin to assess your competitors. Yeah. So, I mean, what you're trying to do is basically understand how people see the world and how that translates into how they're going to make decisions at the poker table. And what I understood over time is that the way that people think about the world is the way they operate at the poker table. So, you know, when I sit down, I'm trying to basically judge a book by its cover. You're not supposed to do that, but it's really all you have, especially in a game where people are, you know, have economic incentive to conceal emotions. They're not just sitting there telling you, hey, I'm a professional. This is my skill set. Or, hey, I'm an amateur. I don't know anything about this game. They're actually trying to do the opposite of that. So it's called a reverse tell. A tell is when someone gives off information that indicates their level of strength or their ability. But a reverse tell is when they're consciously trying to do the opposite. So you have that often at the poker table. But what you're trying to do is just size up the situation and understand what level people are on and then think one level higher than that. So I'm looking at the way, I'm looking at everything. I'm looking at all the superficial things that actually give clues into how these people operate and behave, just like someone would do in the business world, right? You meet someone for the first time, you're trying to assess, is this guy legit or is he a con artist? And how do you do that? It's not the color of his hair or the color of his shirt. It's the accumulation of the package that, you know, your subconscious mind is just quantifying data to just kind of like come to that conclusion right away. So that's what I'm doing at the poker table. I sit down, I look at someone, is he a pro or is he a VIP, right? There's a binary sort of assessment there, just like in the real world. Can I trust this person or not? Is he a con artist or is he a legit businessman, right? And that's what you're kind of doing. And so I kind of profile people in that way. And then I go down the rabbit hole of saying, okay, like how good of a pro is he? What type of level is he on? How is he thinking about the game? Is he thinking about what I have or is he only thinking about what he has? And then I try and devise a custom strategy for each player because a macro strategy isn't going to work in a game of people that's played with cards. It's a game of people played with cards. So you have to understand the people first, and then you can devise a strategy that you know is unique to each and every person. I would say in terms of reading the audience when at least you know me when I'm speaking is like just paying attention to who's paying attention and mm-hmm. like how engaged that person is and then being able to have a plan in real time to be able to pivot and audit. So a lot of times at the poker table, for example, I'll have a profile of a person and I'll have an idea about what I think about my strategy about that person is. Mm -hmm. But if I'm halfway through a hand or I play one or two hands and I realize, oh, wow, this guy took me for a ride. He actually knows what he's doing. Or he played a hand in this way that indicates that he actually is on this level. I need to really quickly adjust my game plan and go to a different strategy. Otherwise, I'm just going to keep losing. Right? The definition of insanity is doing the same thing over, expecting a different result. So if I I don't adjust my game plan in real time, I'm going to get the suboptimal results. And so it's the same thing in in a talk, I feel like when let's say you come in with a analogy you want to give about a point you're making. So if I'm giving an analogy about a point I'm making, I'll start off the point or the talk or the, I'll make the point. But if I see that it's not clicking, I need to be able to pivot. So I need to have a backup plan that I'm going to say, okay, this is a point I'm going to make, but I need to have two other sub points that maybe I go down the rabbit hole and I go into those points a lot further when I see the audience nodding and looking at me and giving me nonverbal cues that what I'm saying is sticking with them. But if I see them looking down or looking away or on the cell phone, that's a sign. And it's important not to take that personally, but to use that as feedback and say, not say, oh, what, you know, they're being so rude, they're on the phone. No, what am I saying that is not engaging that person so that they rather, you know, divide their attention between a cell phone and what I'm saying. So that's a chance for me to pivot. So I always bring it back to what I can do differently. And so if someone takes me for a ride in a hand of poker, I look at what I can do differently to adjust my game plan and my strategy. And likewise, when I'm speaking, it's about understanding 
the points you're making and how that's resonating with the audience by looking at the nonverbal cues of their facial expressions or their engagement and then being able to pivot or adjust in real time. Right. I'm fascinated by how much you're processing at any uh, given point in time. And as you say all of this, I'm noticing how much of this processing and observing and taking in of data is very much external. You know, it's what the other players are doing, are the listeners paying attention to you, et cetera. How do you strike that balance between being dynamic and in the moment where you're picking up all of these external cues, but still keeping intention and track for what's going on in your own head and your own plays and strategies that you're trying to make at the poker table or the things that you're trying to speak and present to in an audience? I think the key to that is to be really well prepared because if someone's an expert at something and they know exactly any question that's going to be thrown their way, yeah. they can pivot really quickly. So if you know the subject that you're talking about, like in hand of poker, let's say I have a game plan and I'm like, okay, my plan is to bet this flop and then bet the turn and then I'm going to bet big on the river. But let's say that halfway through the hand, my opponent gives a nonverbal cue that he actually has a lot of strength. And so then I'm going to change my plan to say, you know what, I was going to bluff here, but I'm not going to bluff because he gave me this tell and I'm not confident in that plan anymore. I'm going to pivot right away. That's because I've played millions of hands of poker and I could pick up on these things and I could adjust in real time because frankly, I'm, I'm, I suck at most things in life, but I'm, I'm really good at poker. Like I'm an expert at poker. Yeah. So I can make those adjustments. But I think the key is, at least when I gave keynotes, was being really, really well prepared. So I could do it in my sleep. I could get wasted and do the keynote because I was so prepared. Yeah. So yeah. I think it's really important that you're really prepared because if you're an expert at something and you're prepared at something, there's nothing that someone could throw your way or there's no question they could ask you about the subject or there's no unforeseen circumstance that could happen that you're not ready for. So if I'm doing coaching with someone in poker, I don't have to necessarily prepare that much for my lessons because I'm confident that whatever question right. they're going to ask me, I'm going to have an answer to, or I'm going to help, I'm going to be able to find the answer or give them the answer or help them with wherever they're at in their journey. And so I think it's important that when people are, you know, devising, I think this comes back to the macro framework of like devising the keynote is really understanding who you are and what your lane is and staying in that lane so that when you're speaking about it, you're like really confident that this is what your unique angle is. This is what your monopoly is? What is your personal monopoly? What are you great at that nobody else is great at? And so when I stay in my lane with what I'm speaking about or what I'm coaching, then I'm really confident that, you know, whatever people ask or whatever subject comes up, I'm going to be prepared for. So that allows me to kind of do multiple things at once, be having my game plan, but also assessing the situation in real time and then pivoting. Yeah. If someone's naturally not good at this, perhaps, what would be some initial advice you would have for helping someone get better at starting to learn how to read a room? Yeah. So, I mean, one thing I always recommend to clients and students to do, frankly, is like if you're going to play poker, you want to get better at reading people. You need to not be biased by what your own emotional state is, what you actually want to happen. So going in with an agenda or what you expect or going in with a preconceived idea blinds people from seeing the situation clearly. And this happens all the time in poker. They say, oh, I have this hand. I want to win this pot. I feel entitled to win this pot. So they're not thinking objectively about what their opponents have. And so they just you know, put all their money in, in a spot where they shouldn't, or they fold when they shouldn't or whatever it is. And so I think a way to kind of clear that emotional judgment, that, that emotional stimulation of the ego is just to sometimes when you play poker, just to think about what your opponent's doing. And the way that I suggest doing that sounds kind of crazy, but I recommend people not look at their cards when playing for small amounts of money, because it forces you to just only look at your opponent and think about what does he have and just focus all your attention on him. So it's kind of a way to force yourself to get out of your own way, get out of your own head and get out of your own agenda and only think about the world from the other person's point of view. Because when you can't see your cards, what do you have? You're just saying, okay, I'm not playing my hand. I can't play my hand. Let me play the other player's hand. 
Let me look at him and think about, okay, he bet in this way. Is he strong or is he weak? He's probably weak because he bet in this way. He looked kind of weak when he bet. He didn't give away a really strong emotion or he wasn't super confident about the way he was acting. I'm going to raise him. Mm -hmm. I don't know what I have, but I'm just not, I'm not playing about that. I'm playing the situation. And so I think that's important. And that's really exercise that I know has helped a lot of, a lot of clients as well. Do you believe that great business communication is an art, more of an art or a science or both and why? Well, I think about my decision-making process in poker, like, and, but I think about like, is this logical or intuitive? And people always say that poker has, you know, both components and it's true. Like, can you, do you make decisions based on statistics and numbers or do you make decisions based on intuition? And so I think it's like a really a combination of both in poker. Like you make intuitive decisions, you get reads on people. It's, you know, psychology, it's uh, a lot of that element of poker, but then there's also, there's a math component. You have to know your odds, your equities, your ranges, and you do have to know the game theory. So it's really a marriage of these two things where great decisions happen. It's when you have an intuitive read about something and then you back it up with logic and the numbers and the numbers confirm what your intuition says. And so I think with business communication, it's a little bit of the same. There's like, there's the art component, which is like that intuitive being able to pivot, being able to read a room, being able to size up a situation, being able to understand a person and what to say and where they're at that can't really be taught. It's just like, you either have that EQ level or, you know, you connect people or you don't. Then there's also the, the logical, the math side of things. There's the science side of things where in terms of like, you know, what the, the Greeks discovered, I believe, and like how to architect a talk with, you know, logos, pathos, ethos. I mean, that is like science, right? Like they figured out how to like architect a discourse to, to convey a point. And that is the science. That's the math side of things. So I think it really parallels the decision-making framework in poker. And you really, you know, the best people have both. The best people know the theory, but they're also able to know when to break the rules because they know the rules, but they also know when to break them. They know when to pivot. They know when to go deeper down the rabbit hole, like we talked about before. They know when to change really quick and switch subjects altogether. They know when to say something they weren't expecting to say, or that wasn't even in their talk just because it felt right in the moment. And so that's the art side of things. And I think when you combine both of those, you're a great communicator. Appreciate that. And what advice would you have for aspiring business leaders who want to improve their communication? Well, if there's anything I learned in poker, it's that you could read a bunch of books, you could watch a bunch of YouTube videos, and you can watch people play poker, but you're never going to get better. Like you're not, you know, you're going to learn more playing for a couple hours than you will studying and reading all that you can study and read. So I think you have to get your hands dirty and you have to get uncomfortable, especially with communication where it's just, it was an area where there's like this immediate negative feedback. If you know, you screw something up, you say something stupid, you give a talk and it, and it flops or you make a point on stage and nobody laughs at your joke or whatever it is. There's that fear component. But I think, you know, bulldozing through that is really the only way to do it. And so I think there has to be a period where like, you know, just, have those expectations, have that long-term time horizon and realize that this is a skill set like anything. And so approach it as such, approach it as this is something that I can get better at. Maybe you're not going to be a master. Maybe you're not going to be a master communicator. Not everyone necessarily will be. Not everyone necessarily needs to be, but if you can get 30% better, 50% better at speaking or communicating or talking with the opposite sex, whatever it is you want to do in, in a communication world, that is really important. And so that is worth dedicating time and effort to because ultimately like you know, life is about communication. It's about connecting with other people. It's about the relationships you have. It's about your ability to articulate your value proposition to the world or to a prospect or to other people or to build those relationships, right? And so I think it's really important to be able to articulate what you're thinking. And so this is like, I think, high level priority and it's worth all of the discomfort that you might incur because, you know, this is the game. Well said. Alec, I'm sure a lot of our listeners are going to want to follow you and learn more. What are some so ways on social media that listeners can connect with you or follow? 
Thank you. Very easy. I'm at Alec Torelli, A-L-E-C-T-O-R-E-L-L-I, everywhere. And you can learn more about me at alectorelli.com. If you are interested in poker and taking your game to the next level, you want to know some poker strategy and how to beat your friends or competition, check out Conscious Poker, or just how it sounds. And we have ConsciousPoker.com and our YouTube is Conscious Poker as well, where I put out videos where I review hands that I played from around the world, different games and stakes and tournaments and cash games, as well as hands from my clients and students that they send to me. I also take people's questions and answer them in videos as well. So that's fun. We put out regular content. I put out a lot of content on that YouTube and it's a lot of fun. It's gotten better over the years. And I think we, we, you know, produce some good stuff. So that's fun. How exciting. Conscious Poker is a great name. Yeah. Thank you. Appreciate that. Awesome. Well, Alec, on behalf of myself and all of our listeners, I just want to say thank you for carving the time out to share your experiences and insights with us today. We very much appreciate it. Thanks, Jay. Thanks for having me on. Appreciate it. Awesome. Thank you so much. Before we move on to our next guest, let's hear from our amazing sponsor, Presentium. Do you spend way too much time creating presentations at work? Do you hate the hassle of creating polished presentations for work? If so, I've got an opportunity for you to reclaim your time, reduce your stress, and make your ideas shine. Think Deeply, Speak Simply is brought to you by Presentium. Presentium makes overnight presentations for enterprise customers at a fraction of the cost of design firms and agencies. They have made over 1 million slides and are trusted by thousands of enterprise customers. It is super easy to use. Just email Presentium a rough draft of your slides by 5.30 p.m. and you'll receive a beautifully crafted presentation in your inbox by 9.30 the next morning. Put Zen in your presentations, reclaim your time, and let your ideas shine. To learn more, visit Presentium.com. That's P-R-E-Z-E-N-T-I-U-M.com. And now back to the show. We are joined today with Srihari Narasimhan, the Senior Director of Global Commercial at Gilead Sciences. Srihari, welcome to the show. Thank you, Jay. Srihari, can you tell us a little bit about your role at Gilead? Sure. So effectively, me and my team, we act as strategic advisors to our commercial colleagues, primarily marketing. Mm -hmm. And our role is to help advise and make recommendations on on key investment decisions and opportunities. So we essentially help weigh opportunities, risk. Our goal and, and mandate is to be the objective voice and provide a perspective and a recommendation for leadership and our uh, colleagues to make decisions on. That sounds like a fascinating role. It is. And yeah, I mean, part of this, a lot of this is based on our own sort of experience, but then the most critical input is the customer feedback. Our role is also to like reach out and hear from customers. So we know how they're thinking about it and we try to translate what they're saying and thinking into our recommendation. Amazing. So touching, you know, basically all the parts of the organization, the decision-making process, and then... Yeah, both internal and external, not just yeah. the internal customers, but we primarily focus on external. Our primary customers are physicians, so we end up you know, conducting research a lot with them and taking right. their feedback and informing our internal decisions. Excellent. And can you talk a little bit around the style of communications that you typically make in that role? Sure. So most of our communications, at least the, the more critical ones, end mm-hmm. up being presentations in meetings of different sizes, right? Sometimes you are getting buy-in and feedback in one-on-one conversations with leaders. Other times it's to a smaller group. And there are other times when you're sort of reading out uh, the recommendation or the the strategy to a broader audience. So those are the different types. Invariably, it involves slides, Mm -hmm. sometimes even spreadsheets, but you're essentially telling them the story. 
Other times, less common, you're having this sort of a, a candid one-to-one conversation right. with someone about the issue. Right. But more often than not, we rely on slides. Totally. And so as you mentioned, you know, telling this story, when we do tell stories, so much of our communication is nonverbal. And so when mm-hmm. you're communicating, what are the, the nonverbal components that you focus on? Me personally, and this has evolved over the years, but for me, energy is key. Sort of my subconscious mode is perhaps a more monotone yeah. sort of nature of conversation. But when I'm in one of these presentations, I make sure I dial up the energy. Yes. And the other part is like matching the tone and the energy with the message. Right. If you're like, I'm talking to my team about some reorganization and restructuring, having a more empathetic tone versus like an upbeat tone. Right. right? So eye contact is key. Right? Making sure they're dialed in and engaged is probably another thing that I try to focus a bit more on. Absolutely. And I think, especially among sort of the higher levels of organizations, mm-hmm. when we're, we're particularly academic or uh, deep in the expertise of what we're working on, like you said, it can be almost an easy default to drift back to that monotone. How do you engage in those inflection points in a way that doesn't feel forced for you or kind of out of character? You, you made the great point of saying, hey, I've got to match it with the messaging, but how do you spark that for yourself? Simple things like you know, making sure that I'm, I'm sort of going around the room Right. Mm-hmm. So, and almost like pausing and waiting, right? Literally looking at one person, giving them a few seconds of your attention. Yep. So until they mirror it back. Yes. Right. And then sort of moving on to the next person in the room as much as you can. Right. right. So that's key. The other is, you know, depending on how people are reacting, like asking a question or, you know, inviting somebody into the conversation. If, you know, you feel like they're either distracted or have something that they want to say. Right. So just engaging them in that conversation is some of the things that I tried. Absolutely. And, and I think when we're presenting information, there can be this tendency to almost try to get through the delivery of it as quickly mm-hmm. as possible. And like you said, that, that ability to pause and slow things down is a real lesson learned as we get better at deeper levels of communication. Yeah. I love that. And when you're making a presentation, can you talk a little bit about what you're looking for during the opening minutes of that when it's so critical and you're trying to set tone and that audience engagement and connection? The key thing I look for is, do I have their attention, like their eyes on me or the eyes on the presentation and have them, even for just a brief period, like they're fully dialed in and engaged, listening. That's what I'm, I'm looking for. And Sometimes you may need to spark that, you know, uh, I try to like humor is a good way to do it, right? Try to like just get the audience distracted from whatever it is they were doing and then right. dial back onto you. Yeah. Or just say something a little controversial, right? And they're like, what? That's not what I was, I thought about. And then you're like, no, no, that, I was just kidding. But now that's, you know, now that I have your attention, you move on to sort of what you're trying to say. Absolutely. But so really like, are they listening to me? Are they looking at me or the, or the slides? Yeah. That's sort of what I look for in the first few minutes. And when you're communicating with a global audience, does that change how you communicate at all? It might have been different perhaps over the years, but at least my perspective is that increasingly now we all sort of think and operate more similarly than dissimilarly. Yes. Sure, there are cultural variations which we need to be mindful of. Like, is humor okay with a certain audience? Like, how do you like address people? How do you, uh, what's your attire and things of that nature? Also being mindful of Things like not everyone may want to speak up in a larger audience. So just paying attention to being mindful of things like that. Yes. But that's probably the key. But like I said, I suspect that my perspective is that we're increasingly operating more similarly. Mm -hmm. So Mm -hmm. 
has gotten easier over the years is my my sense yes which is, is both so heartening and encouraging it is it is yes. and now it's almost like you know the difference is less about like global or cultural but just personality right yes. like yeah in, in any audience you're going to have you know the more vocal people the more quiet people the people who like to think a lot before they say something the people who just say whatever comes to their mind right but now you just have that sort of happening globally and it's less about the cultural aspect but it's more just hate personalities of, of people yes absolutely we ask this question of all the guests on the show. Do you think great business communication is an art or a science more so and why? I definitely think it's both, yep. but it's probably more of an art than it is science. Yes. Right? Yeah, there is the science in terms of like, hey, you get your facts in place, make sure the information is correct and like it's, you know, done well. And the degree of planning you can put into the structure of the presentation, the story you're going to tell and so on. But ultimately you're communicating a story and you've got to be flexible. Like we talk about reading the audience, changing uh, how you're going to address an issue, engaging them. So it's really much more of an art yes. than it is science. And that's probably what another thing that's for me has evolved over the course of the years. Like early on in my career, the focus would be on like the content and the, the science part of the communication. Yes. But over the years, it, I pay more attention to the art piece of it. I'm not as good at it, but I try to focus more on the art piece of it than on the science piece of it. What advice would you have for aspiring business leaders who want to improve their communication? I mean, nothing uh, that's probably radical or novel and that people haven't heard of, but you know, just continuing to practice and practicing with different audiences. Mm -hmm. But the more Critical part is probably getting the feedback, whether it's like, you know, an introspection of how that conversation went, mm. or if, you know, the better approach is having a trusted friend or a colleague who's part of the audience to, you know, just regroup with them at the end of it. Just ask them like, Hey, how did that go? What worked well? What didn't work well? And getting that feedback. So you start to like, you know, notice patterns, figure out what one needs to correct. That's probably a key piece of advice that I would pass on. The other advice that I would pass on that I haven't quite implemented myself is taking like, you know, doing improv or taking improv lessons, right? I've heard this from so many different people. Yes. It helps you think on the fly, react on the fly. I haven't quite done it myself. I'm not that brave yet, but it's something that I certainly pass on <laughs> to yes. other people. I love that. A friend of mine had taken uh, an improv course for that reason. And the, one of the better wisdom nuggets that I learned from him, he's, he said that as improv actors essentially pass the baton from one person to the next for who's kind of running with the act, mm -hmm. they'll often, the, the receiver will often say yes and, yep. and, and then dive into it. And, and I feel that's just been such a, a wonderful technique. And so to your point, I think there's, there's much more we have to learn from that. Yeah, for sure. Well, Srihar, I've really enjoyed our conversation today. On behalf of myself and all of our listeners, I want to say thank you so much for coming on Think Deeply, Speak Simply, and we really appreciate you being here today. Yeah, you're welcome, and my, entirely my pleasure. Thank you. Thank you. Tells, reverse tells. Is your audience looking at you or their phones? Today's conversations underscore the complexity of audience observation, but also reveal the power that can be unlocked if we play our cards right. Luckily, our two experts were able to break down their learnings into accessible lessons. Alec talked about having a custom strategy for each person because, as he said, poker is a card game played by people. Srihari talked about how he asks questions of his audience and how he engages them in order to achieve better participation. I think both of our guests are really saying the same thing. On one end of the spectrum, we have our messaging, i.e., the content we want to deliver. And on the other end of the spectrum, we have our audience and the data points they are providing us.
But the power, the ability to influence, the potential for inspiration, all of that lies in the middle, at the membrane where you meet your audience. And that's where both of our guests focus their efforts. Both guests emphasize one tactic that you can't bluff, preparation. I'm your host, Jay Rook, and I'd like to thank you for listening to this episode of Think Deeply, Speak Simply. If you enjoyed this episode, please subscribe to the podcast, and we'd love it if you'd rate and review the show. Until next time, think deeply and speak simply. Thank you for listening to another episode of Think Deeply, Speak Simply. To learn more about the art and science of communicating ideas, visit our thought leadership library at presentium.com.